are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, even every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Well, it's good to be here again. Uh, my name is David Bubing. For any of you who don't know, I'm the youth and worship director here at Bethany. And we need to get one thing out of the way right at the beginning. This is a psalm written by David. So I just want you to know, if I say David, I'm not talking pretentiously about myself in the third person. I'm either talking about David who wrote the psalm or one of the other ten Davids who attends here at Bethany. <laughs> The danger that we face when we preach a psalm uh, like 139 is that we could dissect it and rob it of its beauty and its impact, the, the intense emotion that David's feeling as he writes these words. In one of my favorite books, the author talks about how, as evangelicals, we oftentimes struggle with robbing scripture of its beauty and its mystery when we explain things that were meant to leave us in awe rather than just letting them leave us in awe. We turn them into theological checklists. Uh, he compares it to someone who's never kissed before trying to describe a kiss in purely physical terms. If you describe a kiss, uh, this is the quote from his book, if you describe a kiss in sheer physical terms, it sounds repulsive. <laughs> Two people press their moist, creased facial orifices together, cinch tight the sphincter muscle, to draw the flesh around the orifice into a bulbous mound and exchange saliva and breath. <laughs> it takes imagination to transmute that into an act of intimacy and eroticism. It takes power to see beyond and beneath the stark physicality of it. 
It's a horrible description, isn't it? <laughs> it's one of my favorite quotes and one of Caitlin's least favorite quotes, so sorry if that was upsetting to you. <laughs> it's easy for us to do that. It's easy for us to resort to explaining details instead of standing in awe, and so I want to work really hard this morning to avoid that. This is a beautiful and powerful psalm. As we work through it, I want us to use our imaginations to, to feel for ourselves what David was feeling as he wrote this. I want us to be awestruck by the God who knows us. As we approach Psalm 139, I don't want you to get me wrong. We absolutely will cover some huge theological truths. But I don't want to let us reduce it down to just that. It's also supposed to engage our emotions with that in mind, the first thing I want to get clear is that as David lists off these different things, right? God sees us when we sit or stand, when we travel or when we rest, when we, or he knows our thoughts. This isn't just a list of things that God knows. David's trying to express to us the incredible awe that he's standing in. He's awestruck by the fact that he stands exposed before God, that there's nothing hidden from God. This leads us to ask a really important question. What should our response be when we experience God's intimate, loving care for us? How do we respond when we recognize the way that God knows us, the way that God loves us and sustains us? This psalm's broken up into four major sections, and we're going to walk through each one of those this morning. My hope is that you'll understand the psalm better as we dive into it, and also that it will engage your emotions. Lastly, I want us to be able to answer that question. What should our response be when we experience God's intimate and loving care for us? If you have your worship folder in front of you, go ahead and pull that out. Uh, and we're going to break down these four major ideas that David communicates through Psalm 139. The first idea is this. David says that God knows every detail of my life. God knows every detail of your life. For, for most of us, that phrase doesn't phase us very much. I'll be honest, at first pass, it doesn't phase me that much. I mean, of course God knows every detail of my life, right? It's, he's God. It's kind of his job. If he didn't, he'd be failing. God's omniscient. I learned that in Sunday school, so we can move on, right? But, but David wants us to understand how personal and complete his knowledge of us is. God knows every detail of your life, and it's not an abstract knowledge. David communicates this by using a lot of figurative language and a lot of word pictures. Word pictures are common in poetry, and they help us to, to feel the meaning and, and, and understand it deeper than maybe we could if it was just a list of details. So David starts out in verse 1 by describing God as searching our hearts. This is a picture he uses to show us the completeness of God's knowledge of us. As humans, the only way that we know things is by searching them out, right? If, if you sit in your home with your eyes closed and your ears plugged, you don't learn new things. You don't gain new information. And so David's painting this in pictures that we can understand. We have to search out information. And depending on how much we care about the subject... It affects how deeply we search. And so David's showing us that, that even though God doesn't need to search, he's using this picture to help us understand that God intensely wants to know us. 
He studies our hearts, knows every detail about us. And then the next thing that David says in verse 2 is that God knows when I sit down or when I stand up. And if you're like me, you enjoy napping, but you maybe feel a little guilty about it. It's great relief because God only knows about sitting and standing, so he doesn't know about my naps. (laughs) Uh, Actually, David's using a figure of speech here called mirism. Mirism is when you use two contrasting ideas to communicate an idea that contains all of that and everything in between. So when David says that God knows when we sit down and when we stand up, he's communicating God knows everything that you do. There's nothing, no limits on what God knows. His knowledge isn't limited to just public knowledge. He knows everything. And then David uses mirrorism again in verse 3 when he communicates that God sees everything. He sees us no matter what we're doing, right? He sees us whether we're traveling or we're laying at home resting. He knows your thoughts your actions, your motivations, your emotions, your plans. God knows every detail. I don't know about you, but I've had moments in my life when I really just hope that nobody was watching. This week, Caitlin bought me a longboard, which is basically a skateboard, but longer. That makes sense. Uh, and it's designed for, like, cruising around. So instead of doing cool tricks, you just, like, cruise around town. It's been a lot of fun. I've been enjoying it, and I've been riding it to work most days this week. It's great because I can get some exercise. It's like a fun activity as well, and I get to work a lot faster than if I was trying to walk. On Thursday, I was riding home from work, and it went well. <laughs> yeah, it was going well until <laughs> I got in front of my neighbor's house. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not talking about neighbor down the street that I don't talk to very often. I mean, like, the guy next door front of his house, I lost my balance a little bit, and then in the process, I ran into my own foot. I dove face forward, and as I attempted to limit the damage to my hands, because obviously that's the important thing to do, I I pushed off (laughs) sideways, and I dove head first like an ostrich at the beach into my neighbor's lawn. It was unpleasant. (laughs) Uh, My first thought as I quickly stood up and got out of there was, I just really hope that nobody was sitting at that window looking out. (laughs) Sometimes I think we limit God's knowledge about us to things that are knowable, the things that are public knowledge, the things that we've told other people, the things we've admitted to, right? But God's knowledge about us is complete and without limit. God sees the pain that you're experiencing. He knows exactly what you're going through. God sees the struggles that you haven't admitted to anyone. He knows about the difficulties in your marriage and sees you as you work to live righteously. He knows about how you still mourn the death of a loved one that seems like everybody else has moved on from. He's intimately aware of your difficult pregnancies, your disability, difficult child, your miscarriage. He knows what you're going through. He understands your difficult parenting situations. He sees you as you struggle to carry on. He sees your pain, your limitations, your struggles. He also sees you as you struggle with sin, as you fight the temptation to live your life for yourself instead of for him. 
And in verse 5, David paints a picture of being wrapped in a fatherly embrace. You hem me in before and behind. You lay your hand upon me. God wraps his protective arms around you. And for some people, this is the most comforting idea possible. God knows my pain, and his embrace is the loving, protective hug of a father. But for others who, instead of fleeing from sin, accept it and hide it in what they believe to be secret, it's, it feels different. God sees everything you do. Nothing is hidden from God's eye. He knows about your bursts of anger, your gluttony, your addictions. He knows about your greed-filled business dealings, about your lies. He knows them even before they pass from your mouth. He sees what you look at on your computer when you think no one's watching. And maybe his embrace feels more like unwelcomed restraint. The hug of a father who knows the horrible choices his child has made. Still full of love, but also full of correction. And David ends this section in verse 6 by declaring that God's knowledge is too wonderful for him. The idea of wonderful here isn't amazing and, and happy. It's the idea that it's, it's far beyond our comprehension. It's far beyond our reach there's nothing that David can do to change God's knowledge, or frankly, even to understand it for himself. And depending on how you feel about God at this moment, your reaction may be either to rejoice in him or to flee from him. Either way, David continues by reminding himself that regardless of how he feels about God, God is inescapable. The second idea that David develops here in this psalm is that God's active spirit is inescapable. He starts this section with two rhetorical questions. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? David knows very well the answer to those questions, and you and I do as well. There's no place we can escape from God's active spirit. David goes on in verse 8 and 9. He uses mirrorism again. Heaven here in verse 8 literally refers to sky and space and everything above us. In our family, uh, space has become a regular topic of discussion. Jupiter is Haley's favorite planet because of how massive and incredible it is. And David recognizes here, I could go to Jupiter or, or I could go clear out of this galaxy and it wouldn't matter. God is still right there beside me. And he contrasts that with the Hebrew word Sheol, which describes the grave. He's saying, I could go as far, as high away as I possibly can, or I could die and be put into the earth. Either way, God's presence is right there with me. In verse 9, he expands this with beautiful poetry. If I take the wings of the morning, and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Wings of the morning is a word picture to describe the sunrise, which is to the east. And for someone living in Israel, much like us here in Oregon, when you say the farthest parts of the ocean, you're going to think west. 
The Bible makes more sense here in Oregon, so another good reason to live here. David says, nowhere east or west, up or down, nowhere. Nowhere is beyond God's reach. And the cool thing in this section is that as Christians, God being with us in Sheol or in the grave takes on an even deeper meaning now. Now the grave is itself our pathway to heaven. Now death is no longer our greatest fear, but rather the way through which we access our greatest hope. We see Paul express this in Philippians 1, 21, and 23. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I am hard-pressed between the two. My, de- my desire is to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Not only is God's spirit inescapable, but his spirit is also very personal and active in our lives. David makes it clear here that the God's spirit isn't just some kind of an active force hovering around us, doing things in the world and making us feel good. He reminds us that it's God's sovereign and personal hand that's in our life. God's hand is in my life. It's in your life. And his presence is for our good and it's for our redemption. And then just in case you thought maybe there's just some way you could hide just a a few parts of your life from God, David replies with a resounding no. David makes it clear. All of our thoughts, motives, and actions are constantly laid bare before God. In 11 and 12, he says, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the uh, the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Nothing can hide us from God's presence. And as David dwells on this incredible view of God, he recognizes that God's personal influence in his life, and it overwhelms him. Our third idea this morning is that God's intimate care is overwhelming. God's knowledge of us isn't simply intellectual. It's deeply personal. Think about the way that you view the things that you have created and compare them with other similar things. Take kids, for example. Most of us, even if kids aren't really our favorite, we have a unique relationship with our children. We love and interact with our children in ways that we'd never interact with other children until they're teenagers and then everything gets so confusing You just send them to me and hope for the best. (laughs) All right. All jokes aside, David is acknowledging the reality that God has a really unique relationship with him. God has a really unique relationship with you. You were created to reflect his image. Have you ever considered the fact that our DNA had to come from somewhere? God literally knows our genetic makeup because he defined it. Only second copy resides in him. David recognizes that every part of our being comes out of God's loving and creative character. God played an instrumental role in the way that we were formed. He made us who we are. And in our most vulnerable state, before we could breathe on our own, God's hand was at work forming us. And this idea leads David to praise. He's overwhelmed by the way that God knows him 
And he praises God because he recognizes the intricacies of how God created him. But David knows that God's involvement isn't just limited to the way that our body was formed. In verse 16, he rejoices at the fact that God not only saw him before he was born, but that he knew every single day of his life. Right now, God knows every detail of your life. He knows how you're going to spend this afternoon. He knows the day that you will die. Prior to landing here at Bethany, uh, the previous two years of my family's life were insane. We moved away from all of our family. I moved out of a really good job that I'd had for the previous 14 years. Eve was born and in the NICU for about 40 days. And we were wrestling with all of that. And that all happened within actually just uh, yeah, a year, actually. In our family, we adopted this phrase, life is crazy. <laughs> we say it kind of jokingly, but it's not really a joke. We use it because it accurately describes how life feels oftentimes. But the comfort, the comforting thing is that we know that God is still active and guiding in our life, even when it feels like life is just crazy. God knows every single day of my life that I'm not spinning out of control because I know I can trust him. David is overwhelmed to know that God thinks about him so much, and we should be also. The number of thoughts that God has about you are far more than could ever be counted. You aren't a nobody. You are known and loved by the God of the universe. But beyond causing us to praise God, it also should cause us to surrender before him. The last idea that David communicates here is that injustice has no place before a loving and holy God. Injustice has no place before a loving and holy God. David takes a quick turn here that for most people seems out of place. Going from such a sweet and enjoyable psalm, talking about God's love and care in our lives, and suddenly we're thrown into some really rough and seemingly hateful language. As a result, the church, we often focus on the first 18 verses of this psalm and kind of leave it at that figure that 19 through 24 is somebody else's problem. And well, ladies and gentlemen, this morning, 19 through 24 is my problem, so... No, rather than a problem, I really think that 19 through 24 holds the answer to that question that we're wrestling with at the beginning of the sermon. What should our response be when we experience God's intimate and loving care for us? Our response has to be to desire holiness. My response is to have unhindered dedication to the God who created me, loved me, loves me, and is active in my life even now. When we experience God's intimate and loving care, our response is to desire holiness. It's the only thing that makes sense when we come face to face with the God who made us. He knows us and will never leave us. Our only response is to surrender. So instead of being out of place, I think verses 19 through 24 are the perfect response to what we've realized in the previous 18 verses. In his, psalm, uh, in his commentary on Psalms, John Goldingay challenges us with this quote. It's a little bit long, so bear with me. There are several contrasts between the meaning of Psalm 139 and the common Christian understanding. First, Christian devotion uses 
1 through 18 in isolation from 19 through 24 to encourage people with the fact that Yahweh knows all about us, will never let us go, and has been involved with us from our very beginnings. This edifying practice obscures the psalm's point, which lies in the relationship between those facts and the commitments made in 19 through 24. It may therefore not be an edifying practice because it lets Christians off the hook of the psalm's challenge. The demands uh, that demands that we come before God as people committed to God's way and that we express that commitment in resolute opposition to wrongdoing. You see, when we experience God's intimate and caring relationship, our response must be a total and complete commitment to God's ways. But as David Burnham reminded us a few weeks ago, justice isn't based on our desires or even our comforts. It's not even based on the law of the land that we live in. Biblical justice is based on what God says is right and wrong in his word. David starts in verse 19 by calling out an obvious violation of God's law. He requests that God does away with people who desire blood. Murderers and people who exploit those who can't defend themselves. Sometimes the idea of God's wrath makes us uncomfortable. How could a loving God act this way? But when we think of all the pain in this world, pain caused by people acting unjustly towards other human beings, and the loving thing for God to do is to condemn those people. The loving thing for God to do in the face of this injustice is to do away with bloodthirsty people. David continues, and he condemns those who mock God, those who speak against God with malicious intent, whose desire is to destroy God's people. But it's really important here we understand this. David's imprecation here isn't to be confused with hate towards his own enemies. Let's read verses 21 and 22. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. David asks God to acknowledge that he has rejected all those who are God's enemies. I think oftentimes we assume that God's enemies and our enemies are kind of the same thing. That as we fight against injustice, injustice, all we have to do is follow our gut. But David is clear in this section, it's God's enemies. Those who oppose God's idea of justice that David has to turn against. It may have been for David, and it may be true for you too, that Opposing God's enemies actually is painful at times. Sometimes God's enemies are people who we want to be in partnership with. They're people who can help us. I think we're too quick sometimes in Christian culture to define good guys and bad guys by our own standards. And we go ahead and put God's stamp of approval on those who do what we want them to do. But bad guys aren't just on one side of the aisle. In the past few years, we've seen some really exciting strides on the issue of abortion in our nation. We've seen new Supreme Court justices appointed that might possibly stand up against this clear injustice. New laws passed limiting abortions and ultimately with the goal to push back against this unjust law of the land that allows for the bloodshed of children. 
We can rejoice in that. But even as we've seen more and more laws push back against abortion, we've seen the United States back away from helping people from other countries. At a point in history when there are more refugees in the world than ever before, the United States has dropped the number of refugees that it's taken in significantly over the past three years. And as followers of Christ, we must recognize that all people are made in God's image regardless of where they're born. Our hearts should be broken at the thought of anyone losing their life. People can never be pawns in our political games. Our desire has to match that of God's. Our desire has to be to care for the poor and the the oppressed, regardless of where they come from. And regardless of what we think, what each one of us thinks is the best policy regarding immigration, we, we have to speak of all people as image bearers of God who deserve respect. And to recognize that the death of any of those people whom God created, whom God knows intimately, is a tragedy. That we must be committed to pro-life issues on abortion? Absolutely. But we must also be pro-life on issues that come after the womb. David also calls us to support justice in our personal lives. That we are honest with the people around us. That we don't support practices that oppress people. That we care for hurting people that are directly around us in our life. The good news is that we have someone to model our life after. We have a king who submitted his whole life to the will of the Father. Not only one to follow, but one that we can have hope in as we fail again and again. Because as we read this psalm, as we recognize God's love and care in our life, we, we have to respond by desiring holiness. But we know that we will fail. We're going to fail again and again and again. And if you don't recognize that, you're lying to yourself. We will fail. And we have hope because the one who came before us lived a perfect life. Jesus' life was lived in perfect justice and perfect holiness. Everything in his life showed dedication to the Father. And then... He died and rose again from the dead to take on the debt that we owe, that you and I owe. He took on that debt, wiping away every failure that we have had, every injustice that we have done, so that we can stand before God in an even deeper and more intimate relationship. Not only do we know the God Not only do we have a God that knows us intimately and cares for us, but we have a God who is willing to die in our place when we failed to live up to his standard. More than anything else, this should cause us to desire to live for him. I think this quote from Francis Chan captures it perfectly. I want you to see that the crazy people in this world are those who have experienced God's love and remained complacent, not those who have let go of all they have to follow him completely. In response to such love, the only reasonable thing is to offer our whole lives to him. David ends this psalm after talking about what God has done, and he he moves forward to talk and invite God into his own life. 
verse 23 and 24, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. David invites God to examine his life and to expose the problems in his life. So my question this morning is, is your life open to God? He already knows every detail of your life. His active spirit is inescapable. He's your creator and he's your savior. But do you stand and open yourself up to him? I encourage you today to stand before him without your preconceived ideas and ask him to point out any grievous way in you, to point out any sin in your heart or in your life that might be hindering your relationship with him. Ask him to guide you in a pure life that honors him. Ask him to help you to reject his enemies even while you love your own enemies. His desire is to guide you step by step into eternal life that's only offered through his son, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that guides us. We thank you for the relationship that we have with you, that you are not a distant God. You're not far away from us. You are near, that you know what's going on in our lives and as we struggle. Man, each one of us struggles. As we struggle, you are right there, you're aware, and you are guiding us like a father. God, I pray that you would help us to live our lives acknowledging that. Live our lives acknowledging how incredible your love and care for us are and that we would respond by wholeheartedly pursuing you, by doing away with everything that hinders our relationship with you. that we would surrender everything for the sake of knowing you. In Jesus' name, amen.